Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. We come to the last message in this series that we've done all summer, uh, 12 or 13 messages now on God's wisdom and primarily focusing in the book of Proverbs. And uh, this morning, we are going to talk about one of the topics in the book of Proverbs that is actually one of the most talked about topics, not only in the book of Proverbs, but also in the Bible itself, and that is Money and wealth. Bible and Proverbs says a lot about how to get it, how to manage it, uh, the dangers and the blessings that are associated with it. What's interesting is if you, depending on where you start in the Bible, you might have a different idea and perspective of what God thinks about wealth and riches and money. So, for example, if you started in the Old Testament, maybe with the book of Amos, you might conclude that God. Uh, believes all rich people, all people who have wealth and money. And by the way, just let's clarify something. Uh, probably 99% of us in here are rich and wealthy by the world's standards, okay? You may not think so, but we are according to the world's standards. So if you started in the book of Amos, you might think that God believes that all of us got whatever we have through oppression and injustice and through evil living, if you go to the parables of Jesus, it's the rich man who goes to hell, right? Not Lazarus, the poor man. And don't, don't even think about James having something nice to say about uh, people with money and riches. So if you start in some places, you could walk away thinking God hates rich people and wealthy people and despises them. Or if you maybe started in the book of Genesis or the book of Job, you would conclude that God loves rich people and people who have wealth. You see, wherever you begin to go, uh, there's a different perspective in, in the book. And, and so you can understand why the prosperity gospel would take place. Because if, if you cherry pick your passages, you can very easily make the word of God say that he wants everyone to be healthy and driving a Bentley, okay? Uh, that's just, uh, it, you can cherry pick the passages. Or you can even go to the other extreme. Instead of a prosperity gospel, you can cherry pick passages and preach a poverty gospel that God wants everyone to be humble and poor and don't have wealth and material things. So this is one of the reasons why God's wisdom in Proverbs as it relates to our 
work and to our wealth is so needed. In one book, these important topics, several strands of God's wisdom are interwoven, and they paint for us a very clear picture for what should be our norm as we approach our careers, our work, and our wealth, and the riches and money that God gives to us. So this morning, we are going to look at the spirituality of wealth and the realities of wealth and money, but we're going to start with work, because for most of us, it's our work that provides the wealth that God gives us. And so we're going to begin with the dignity of work. And let's note, right from the beginning of Scripture, that God created us to work. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And this creation mandate, as it's often referred to, was not abrogated by sin and the fall. We were created in the image of God, which meant, means that we were created to work in his creation and in his kingdom. Proverbs doesn't flinch from the fact that we now have to work within a fallen world. In fact, the call to gain wisdom, to live prudently and make wise decisions is encouragement to face the sin and the folly of this world in a God-honoring way. And this is one of the reasons why Proverbs stresses the sovereignty of God so much. We can work within this fallen creation, within our careers, within our jobs and our businesses in a way that honors God because we can have the confidence that God is in control of this world even as it's in bondage to sin. So what Proverbs does as it comes to the dignity of our work and work in general is it, it, it presents the dignity of work by contrasting two extremes. We have two kinds of Uh, different people um, metaphorically uh, put out before us on the continuum. On the one end of the continuum are those who understand that work is a blessing. It uh, Work helps us build character. It helps us to contribute to the common good, and it honors our working God in whose image we are created. God is at work all around us. In creation, in the spiritual world, in the physical world, he is a working God. To be created in his image means that we are to love work, to embrace it willingly. And so what you see on this end of the continuum is that hard work and wise decision-making usually leads to an increase in wealth into, a, into a, what we would call a prosperous life. Now, prosperous, again, as we've talked about in past weeks, doesn't mean that you have a Bentley necessarily, but you have a good life where your needs are met, where you are able to leave an inheritance, where you are able to enjoy the things of this world. We see this kind of person in this kind of end of the continuum in contrasting Proverbs. Lazy people are soon poor. Hard workers get rich. Wealth from get-rich-quick schemes quickly disappears. Wealth from hard work grows over time. So this picture of us as the people of God applying ourselves to the careers, to the work, to the business, the skills that God has given, managing those uh, careers, making wise decisions, the norm is you see wealth beginning to build in your life and then in future generations. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the lazy person 
who is pictured as a sluggard and a fool. Those who can work but do not work diligently are fools, entangled in the sin of slothfulness. This passage of scripture, every time I see it, I think of my mom from the time I was a child. How many times did I hear these words? Go to the ant, thou sluggard. (laughs) Consider her ways and be wise. I mean, your children don't want to work, right? But mama made me work. Get out of bed. Time to get to work with your chores and your, you know, things where you're going to sweat and learn how to work. And when I would whine and complain, go to the ant, thou sluggard. I can't get away from that. I can hear it in her voice right now. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Sometimes that was accompanied with some water being poured on me. (laughs) A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. As Christians, what Proverbs shows us is that we are to be uh, hard workers, people who love to work at our businesses, our companies, our bosses, our employers. When they think of us, they see someone of integrity who works hard for the salary, for the pay that he's given. When we see the innate goodness of work, the dignity of work, when we understand how our work is actually honoring our working God, our normal everyday work is then transformed into an act of worship and obedience. And it becomes the primary means through which God blesses us, he prospers us, he takes care of our normal daily needs and allows us to begin to build wealth for the future. So there's the dignity of work and what it does as it relates to wealth. So let's turn our attention to wealth and money. The spirituality of wealth and money is where we have to begin. And let's say it like this. Our worth is not determined by our wealth. We are not defined by how much money we have, how how nice our home is, how nice our car is, uh, maybe by how nice your boat is. No, um, but you know, we, we're not defined by our wealth, the amount, whether it be great, small, or in the middle. We need to understand, and Proverbs is clear about that, that wealth is not an indicator of being better than someone else or being more loved by God. Jacob read for us a few moments ago from chapter 22, verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. There are many things in life that are more important than the size of our financial bank accounts or retirement accounts, whatever they may be. A good name being the first of those things, a good testimony as a follower of Jesus Christ and having very little money and a great testimony as a hard worker who is frugal and prudent and wise, that is so much more important than having a large bank account and having a poor testimony. So our worth is not based upon the size of our, uh, of our bank account. Verse 2 says, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Our dignity, church, comes from being created in the image of God. Regardless of our demographic data, whether we are black, white, brown, some other color, whether we are male, female, highly educated, not highly educated, very intelligent, not so intelligent, large bank accounts, small bank accounts, 
That demographic data is irrelevant to our worth. Our worth comes because we are loved by God and we are created in God's image and we have been called out to be God's children before the very foundations of the world. Our worth comes because we are in Christ and we have all spiritual blessings in him. We have everything at our disposal that belongs to God. That doesn't mean that God is not concerned with our wealth. He is. God is most concerned with our approach to money, not the amount of money that we have. So whether you have a small amount of money or a large amount of money, it is possible for you to handle that money in a way that dishonors God. You can be poor as a church mouse and be the biggest idolater when it comes to money. You can have all kinds of money and be a millionaire and be humble and not be an idolater about money. That's what God is looking for. Regardless of the size of our financial assets, it's the attitude of the heart and our approach to money and how we accumulate that wealth and what it does to our spiritual lives that God is most concerned with. He's concerned with how our wealth may impact our relationship with him. He's concerned with how our wealth may impact and affect our relationship with other people. So when it comes to our money, if Jesus were to come and do a financial audit of our bank accounts and our finances and all of the things that we have, what would it reveal? Would it reveal that we uh, as a person, as a follower of Jesus Christ, are a blessing to the kingdom of God, that we are stewarding this money that he has entrusted to us in a way that honors the kingdom, his church, the needs of the gospel, the needs of the poor? Would it reveal in that audit that we are generous, sacrificial givers for the kingdom of God and for the people who are in need that we know? What would that audit reveal? about us, that we're generous or that we're stingy, that we're wise or foolish, that our approach to money and, and wealth is spiritual first, or is it material more than it is spiritual? There's no true wealth when that wealth causes us to sacrifice our relationship with God and with other people. Understand this basic truth. Our relationships are more important than our riches. Our relationship with God through Christ is more important than the size or lack thereof of our financial abilities. God is most concerned with our relationship with him. Money comes into play because money, as Paxson spoke about in our worship time earlier in the reading from Luke, becomes such an idol to so many of us. But what God makes clear is that there's no real wealth, no true wealth, no true prosperity apart from a vital relationship with him. And this is why we see in, uh, excuse me, in verse 4 of chapter 22, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. It starts with that fear of the Lord that we have talked about so much through the book of Proverbs, our relationship with God, our understanding of who God is and his presence in this world, and that he is ruling and working and in control and my place under him so that he is Lord, fulfilling his calling on our lives. That is the fear of the Lord, being in awe and reverential fear and obedience of him. 
This is where it begins. And this is what God is most concerned with. And when this is in place, we find that wealth and money and work fall into their natural place where they belong. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. In chapter 15, verse 16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and the trouble that comes with it. Our relationship is more important than our riches, especially our relationship first with God and then our relationship with others. The spirituality of money and wealth cannot be underemphasized. This is why you see Jesus teaching and speaking and preaching so much about wealth and money. And even he kind of gives us his own proverb and the Sermon on the Mount and says something very strong. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The reason why Jesus gives such a strong, stark warning is not because, there is that, because money and wealth is intrinsically, inherently evil. Money itself is, is neutral. Wealth is neutral. It's what we do with it that turns evil or good. And so Jesus recognizes that, the, that our bank accounts, our financial accounts, give the easiest single snapshot of our allegiance to him, of our love for God, for his church, for his kingdom, for the spread of the gospel, for the help of those who are poor. So right now, going back to that idea of an audit, what does your checking account, your finances reveal? Spiritually, as to your allegiance to the kingdom of God, the church of God, the spread of the gospel, the relief of the poor. You know, one of the reasons why we stress here at Covenant, a tithing and, and giving beyond the tithe, giving generously, is because we recognize the sanctifying effect it has upon us as we give to God first from our sources of income. Most of us, I'm just going to say it like this because I can't prove it scientifically with data, but for, after being a pastor for more than 30 years now, most Christians I interact with have idolatry problems as it relates to money and wealth. What's ironic is that as the, our generations, the last two or three and the current ones, we are the wealthiest generation of Christians ever, and yet we give to God's work and to his kingdom at rates much lower than Christians who went through the Great Depression, for example. It's infinitesimal compared to the average. We've gotten wealthier as followers of Christ, living a more comfortable and better life, and we've become more miserly as it relates to funding the kingdom and God's church and spreading the gospel. It's not just, I'm not just talking about, I'm talking about Christian churches in general. This is the case, and it's just not getting any better. And the reason why is it's a spiritual problem. It's idolatry. And this is why we do emphasize, hey, start where, where, where Abraham started and give a tithe back to God. 
Our goal as Christians ought to be that when we look at all of our financial giving for the church, for the kingdom, to spread the gospel around the world, helping the poor, our goal really should be that that total amount is much more than 10%. That, that's giving from grace. That's giving in the new covenant. Now, that's hard to do because of the idolatry of wealth that's in so many of our lives. So where do you start? If you, if you looked at that audit, you go, you know, where do you start? You start first by praying and asking God to give you the grace to make your giving an intentional act of worship. It's not a duty or an obligation. It's something that we get to do because God is the ultimate giver. He's given us his son, Jesus. He's given us eternal life through Jesus. And so us giving back to God right at the very beginning of our month as we get our paychecks or at the end, whenever they come in, that intentional act of worship to God out of gratitude. First, intentionality. Second, priority. Priority. The number of years, as I look back, where I was, I, I missed out on the blessings of God. I missed out on God's blessings because I was a leftover giver rather than a priority giver. What I mean is I did everything else I needed and wanted to do with the money, and then whatever I had left over, God got some of that. When God got a hold of my heart, my perspective changed. I started giving to God first. The checks, my pay came in. God got paid before Jerry got paid or other things that in life got paid. I gave back to God. And how I saw God bless that priority of putting him first. I'm not talking about a percentage here. I'm just saying you are intentionally giving to God and you are looking at it and you're saying, I'm going to give to God first before I fund the luxuries and things in my life or extra things. God first. Finally, final word here to help you, there's intentionality, there's priority, and start somewhere with a percentage. You say, Jerry, I, I can't start with a tithe or more than a tithe. Okay, well, start somewhere and do it intentionally and then begin to pray and ask God to help you grow in this area of worship so that you can see that percentage increase over the years. What a testimony of faith of where you are now and where you could be 20 years from now or 10 years from now and how God channels through you the resources for his kingdom. Because here's the thing, and I have lived this and experienced this as God got a hold of my own heart, as I began to worship God through my giving, by being intentional, I couldn't start at 10%. We were in such bad condition. I think it was like 1% or 2%. That's where we started, and that was a stretch. That was hard. But then as God blessed, that percentage grew and grew and grew. And here's what I found out. It's a cliche, and it's so true. You will not outgive God. You will not outgive him. Those who honor God with their money and their wealth, they are blessed in return. And it's throughout the book of Proverbs that he is going to bless your life. Now listen, I'm not talking about some cosmic heavenly Ponzi scheme where you give a dollar and you get $2.50 back. 
This blessing may be financial, material blessing. I think that's clearly in scripture where he provides for our needs and he channels his money for his work through generous people. He does. But the blessings are way beyond financial. It's getting to hear that after 14 years of supporting Amjad, we have over 400 Muslim men and women who have embraced Jesus Christ. How many house churches do you have now, Amjad? Okay, you have one in, in England, right? And then you have things going on in Pakistan, all right? So you have house churches. You had more, and that's why you need the volunteers to come back up, right, because of COVID. But we get to have this blessing. These are blessings beyond money. Look what he says in Proverbs chapter 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. God blesses generous people in a variety of ways. You know, as I mentioned a few moments ago, Proverbs does not flinch from calling us to work hard within a fallen world. And it also doesn't flinch from all things money-related. I would encourage you to to do a deep dive into money and wealth in the book of Proverbs. You're going to see that Proverbs talks about earning it, inheriting it, spending it, loaning it, wasting it, giving it, investing it, saving it, handling it wisely, pursuing it, loving it, and worshiping it. All of those things in the book of Proverbs. It's like a financial manual at your disposal. Financial advisors are smiling right now. He's over here, right? It's all through the book of Proverbs. When it comes to money and wealth, God's wisdom in Proverbs is infinitely realistic and practical. So in the last few moments that we have, I want to close by talking about the reality of money. And I want to do so by sharing some practical applications that come from just different pastors and teachers and, that I respect, guys like Kevin DeYoung and Chuck Swindoll and others like this. First, practical application when it comes to the reality of money. Those who make riches their passion lose much more than they gain. The scriptures tell us that do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for certainly it, suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Faithful man, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. The more You love money and pursue money, and getting more wealth and money is a critical, central concern of your heart, the more you lose. The more you think you got a hold of it, the less you have of it. It will disappear. Secondly, wisdom gives wealth guidance. Wisdom gives wealth guidance. Proverbs 16 verse 16 says, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Get this connection. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We start with our relationship with God. We then pursue God's wisdom. And here's the idea of this this principle. You can gain money and not have wisdom, and in the end, the money and everything associated with it will disappoint. You'll probably even lose most of it. You certainly won't take it with you. However, 
If you make the pursuit of God's wisdom the central concern of your life, growing in that walk with God and that relationship with God, what you'll see is you acquire God's wisdom, wealth, and prosperity, and riches take their rightful place. You begin to make decisions that honor God. And the consequences of good, wise decisions normally transfer into your financial realm and into your material world. So wisdom gives you that guidance as you're seeking to manage your money, to invest it, to be wise with it. Thirdly, increased riches, oh, excuse me, uh, yep, this one, there we go. Don't worry about keeping up with the Joneses, all right? This is an old expression, young people, you may not get this, but those who are older know it. Keeping up with the Joneses. How many times we, we live in a way because we know somebody who has X and we also desire it. Don't worry about that. Here's what this Proverbs tells us. It's better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. You, you get what's going on here? The other one says, one pretends to be rich yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor yet has great wealth. I've seen this through the years of ministry people who have come into my church or come into my circle of life, and on the outward appearance, these guys are loaded, and they let you know it by the way they live, and they have it all. And then surprise, surprise, their electricity gets cut off because they don't pay their power bill. And then they end up maybe at some point having to declare bankruptcy. And then how often do we look at that person and, wow, I wish I had. You don't know what's going on behind closed doors. You, don't, you may not know that their love of money has destroyed their marriage, and they're headed for the divorce. And we all know what divorce does to a, a bank account, right? I mean, you just never know. Don't waste your time keeping up with the Joneses. Fourthly, increased riches bring increased complications in our lives. Increased riches bring increased complications. Money and our approach to money it's either going to be a blessing to us, or as the Proverbs warn, it enslaves us. We become a slave. We lose our freedom. Money, our approach to money has the potential to be an incredible blessing to others. Maybe we leave an inheritance for our family. We're able to fund the work of the kingdom. Incredible good. Or it can consume your life and become this incredible enslaving force, it can destroy you. For example, it can give you a false sense of security. Proverbs 18.11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Money and our love of money and our attitude and approach towards money can become such that we begin to trust in it rather than God for our security in life. Guarantees something is going to come along if that's going on, especially in God's children, where he will bring something along to disabuse you of that notion. It will happen. It, another concern that happens with increased riches is the increased probability of arrogance and pride. I've made it. Look what I've done. Look at all I have. The poor plead for mercy. Rich answer with insults. And the idea is here is because they're arrogant. Rich people may think they are wise, but a poor person with discernment can see right through them. 
So there's a, there's a moral aspect or a spiritual aspect to this of pride. And then we've all seen this happen in different ways. You will begin to see new friends that suddenly appear in your life and all kinds of moral temptations that come with them. He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. Increased riches bring increased complications. Wealth brings me new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. I just saw this this last week. Professional athlete, some of you might know, recognize the name, Anquan Walker. Makes almost $200 million as a professional athlete. He's broke, destitute, as he describes what happened. It's the Proverbs right here. All the friends and all the family and everybody else with the handout, taking care of him, the parties that he funded, the immorality that took place, destroyed everything he made. One final application this morning. I can get this, I think, is it frozen? My my screen is frozen. Bring up the next set of verses. Final idea is that money cannot buy what's most important in life. Money can't buy what's most important in life. And this is true for two reasons. First of all, money can only buy things that are for sale. Money can only buy things that are for sale. Happiness is not for sale. A clear conscience is not for sale. You can't buy integrity. A, a, a freedom from worry, they are not for sale. The things that make for a great life, you can't purchase these things. There, there was a song from the 1920s. It's been reused and, and it's been even used by advertisers. The best things in life are what? Free. That's true. Peace with God and one another. A life filled with love, a good name, character, integrity. These don't come through mo- by money. You don't buy these things. These things come from the fear of the Lord and the accumulating of His wisdom, not from the size of our bank account. The very best things in life are free to us. Now, they weren't free to Christ. Because he had to give his life on the cross to purchase our peace with God. He had to give his life to purchase this love that we enjoy from our Heavenly Father. Money can't buy what's most important in life because the most important things in life aren't for sale. And it's true because money cannot provide us with ultimate eternal security. It can't. The Scriptures tell us, In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectations of wealth perish also. Eternal life, the most valuable thing that we can possess. It's not for sale. The price was paid already by Jesus. We don't earn it. We don't buy it through being good. We don't buy it by giving a percentage of our income to God's work. We don't buy it by being a great worker, by trying to improve ourselves. We receive it because of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't buy salvation with money and with our deeds. We receive it. 
And what we receive is eternal, ultimate security. What we receive is ultimate wealth. So that every one of us who is a follower of Jesus Christ are co-heirs with Jesus. Our inheritance is assured and all blessings come to us through our Father. This is why the spirituality of money is so important. If it's an idol in your life this morning, or if it's a struggle, some of us, that's two steps forward and one step back, may this week be a week where we reaffirm and dedicate ourselves to worshiping God first. Allow money and wealth to take its proper place. Lord Jesus, give us the grace that we need to make this true and so in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, it is so easy for us to trust in the dollar bill. God, forgive us that for many of us, we are more familiar with our 401ks and our investments and our financial accounts than we are with your word. We know more about the stock market than we do maybe the most basic things of our faith. Break the hold of idolatry that can exist in your children's lives. Give us victory, I would ask. Make us a generous people. Make us a wealthy people who are very generous, who prosper and enjoy your blessings because of the humble, generous spirits that only can come about through the work of your spirit. Would you do that work in our hearts, Lord Jesus, so that the kingdom can grow through our church? I ask these things for your glory, Lord, and for the good of everyone who is here. Amen.